Hello and welcome to Kajurin's Talks, episode 18. We're here to talk about uh, value stream mapping. I'll be your host today. I'm Solange, a craftswoman at Kajurin's, and I'm joined by... Oh, me. Um, Chris Bibson. I'm also a craftsman at Kajurin's. Mashik Badar. I'm uh, one of the co-founders of Kajurin's. And you know me, Jorge, a software craftsperson here at Kajurin's. So what is value stream mapping? I can, would you like me to answer? Go for it, you go for it. So, uh, that's the only question that I have actually prepared for. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll definitely go for that one. So, um, value stream mapping is part of the lean way. And um, there are a few elements of the lean way. And it's um, basically identify value, map the value stream, create flow, create pull and seek perfection. So value stream mapping is the second part of that. So once you identify the value, the next part is to actually visualize how value progresses through your, um, your work stream. So basically it's the end-to-end -end flow uh, from a supplier to the customer through your organization. And it's, it's about visualizing that and understanding how that flows, where the bottlenecks are, where the queues are, um, what the cycle time for each stage is and what the overall lead time is as well and what the wait time in between stages is. So that's value stream mapping in a nutshell. You, you, you have introduced a lot of vocabulary. Uh -huh. Cycle time, lead time, queue time. Uh, queue size. Queue size, mm -hmm. sorry, not queue time. Mm -hmm. Care to explain all that? Yeah, that's a very quick one. Maybe we can go a bit deeper later on, but right yeah. now. So very quickly, uh, lead time is actually one of the most important things, which is the, the time it takes for goods to enter your process and for the product or value to come out of the process, right? Mm -hmm. So that's basically, it's your end-to-end, -end, the time it takes for something to go in and some, and and that thing to pop up at the other end that the customer's value. So that's your overall lead time. Cycle time is uh, how long a particular stage takes. So when, when something goes into that stage and when it comes up or when that process finishes, that's your cycle time. The wait time is the wait in between processes. The queue time is that you would probably each stage would probably not be synchronized with each other. So they will have a queue. So the previous stage is producing and is queuing up if the next stage is slower, right? So, so that queue size is the work waiting for a particular stage to, um, and I think that's about it really. Okay. Yeah. All right, so where does this value stream, stream mapping come from? It comes from um, from the lean way. Uh, it's uh, think where Toyota actually pioneered that. Uh, I think a lot of the concepts came out of Toyota from the Toyota production system, mm -hmm. although they didn't call it value stream mapping at the time. Mm -hmm. Some of those were, uh, terms kind of evolved over That's right. the years. Yeah, but it's a recognized kind of uh, part of the lean way, as it were, to map the value stream. 
Okay, so it's from the manufacturing industry That's applied right. Spe yeah, specifically, specifically car manufacturing. Yeah. All right. Okay. Applied to all other industries. It's well. It was definitely applied to a lot of the manufacturing industry. Um, uh, in fact, there are uh, there is a there are a few good books on it. Um, there's a precursor to kind of I guess this is called the goal, and then the Phoenix project is also about kind of uh, understanding lean concepts and value stream mapping. Again, it's not mentioned directly as value stream mapping, but it's about visualizing your flow. So value stream mapping is just a fancy word for understanding or visualizing your flow, right? So one, the idea is that once you visualize your flow, you can then truly start to understand where the bottlenecks are, where, uh, you know, what the queue sizes are, those kind of things and how you and then you can start working towards optimizing that to decrease your lead time which is the end-to-end -end flow of, of value through your process. Uh, interesting and probably we'll uh, talk about it later but it's the, the first time that I saw what now I call value stream mapping uh, was uh, one of my previous jobs it was in a factory mm -hmm. so we were creating software for the for the factory floor and they brought, um, how was his name, Darsonson. He was, um, he used to work on the American parent company mm -hmm. and came, uh, he was probably here just to lean, uh, to basically apply lean on the, at the factory floor. Mm -hmm. uh, first it was impressive the changes that, uh, that he made in how the, the, the factory was uh, being handled. Uh, you have uh, plaques uh, with the names everywhere, and you knew exactly where everything was. They, they were kind of, um, he put down, um, uh, how's it called, painted kind of corridors. So you knew the way that the, the, the production within the factory floor was happening. You could follow the, the flow. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the exercises we did for the application that I was working on uh, was mapping how the process uh, was supposed to work with uh, between the between what we were doing and what the application was doing and now now uh, as i say i call it value stream mapping but he did a manufacturer person just just doing things over there and uh, kind of uh, describing the whole flow of the of what we were doing and and as well um, hopefully we'll talk about it later on, uh, discovering things that we didn't know about the system, things that we thought that it was happening in some specific way, when we were a bunch of people down there talking about it, and well, actually, no, it doesn't happen that way. Mm -hmm. It was taking away uh, all those assumptions that we had and just putting the actual real world in front of us. Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually, um, value stream mapping is there to um, uh, kind of create flow or reduce your lead time and and it's very important in software because the processes are often intangible right so in in manufacturing it was somewhat easier because it, there are physical stages uh, if they were even initially these stages were called workstations I think and you can you can see the the uh, build up of goods before the work stage or if a uh, work stage was starved of 
of work you could actually see it because it was tangible but in software or in software process it's it's very intangible and often you don't understand where the bottlenecks are where the inefficiencies are so visualizing that and keeping it up to date is I think one of the most basic things that you should have in a software project. You should always have that. But it's not just, it doesn't stop just there. Because you can through your value stream map or even by describing the flow, you can answer a lot of questions that people often ask. So for example, a lot of people would ask the question, why is it that we we advocate that the QA, for example, needs to be at the start of the process alongside the developer, the business analyst, and so on? And there is a, a concept of waste in Lean. The waste is anything that any activity that you are doing which is not contributing to to value or which is not taking the the process further in your value stream right so you can describe the QA um, uh, if it's towards the end you can describe it as waste because what you do is people are building things they're passing it on to the QA the QA might find a defect and they have to send this product back and that is waste because anything that travels back in your flow uh, value stream uh, or anything that travels back in your value stream is actually waste, right? So you can, in that way, you can describe why it's better to have QA working alongside developers and analysts and so on. So that, so you can really describe the advantage. It's not just hearsay or like, oh, it's just good because we're a team and so on. No, there is an economic gain in having the QA with, with the developers. And so there are many other aspects of how we build software that can be described in this way and can help you find the right way of doing things. All right, okay. So one of the problems you you mentioned that this uh, process or this technique solves is identify bottlenecks. Mm -hmm. Can we um, elaborate a little bit more about um, not only identifying these bottlenecks, um, the wait time, uh, around those bottlenecks mm -hmm. and how to solve that. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, if it, if this helps identify them, visualize them, would you recommend um, then uh, to 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 reduce those bottlenecks? Mm -hmm. So the best way when you're visualizing your value stream, uh, so you're creating a value stream map. Um, <coughs> The best way to identify bottlenecks is to monitor queue size, right? So if your queue size is is growing, um, or then you you know that there is there is something stopping from work to to pass through, right? So so you can the the in software you can create um, in your for example on your Kanban board or something where you are visualizing progress through the system and that's why so value stream map is not just a map of your static process it can be uh, a visualization of what's currently happening and you can visualize that with a kanban board for example and there you can actually uh, understand within each phase 
crossing from one phase to the next there will be items that are waiting for the next uh, phase to be ready for that item to, to go so the queue will start to build and there is your indication of certain um, bottlenecks right so then once once you've identified your bottleneck you know that these bottlenecks by definition are adding to your wait time right so you are trying to reduce the wait time so ideally uh, the next phase in fact in the lean way after you visualize your value stream is called to create flow right so what you're trying to do is to create this flow through your system so ideally something should come in and without waiting go through each works uh, uh, each stage um, all the way out to actually providing value to your customer so then you start understanding okay what parts are are not working as well as others and then you can start looking at the reasons behind them so you can I think they call them Kaizen bursts or these kind of things where you can actually take one area which is a bottleneck mm -hmm. and you can work uh, try to understand what would alleviate that bottleneck right um, in in theory of constraints they actually what they say is um, that you know you should take the thing that is the biggest bottleneck and put it in front of your process because that's the speed at which your whole flow is working so what's the point of building this kind of half done or work or inventory or work in progress when actually it's just going to stop somewhere and inventory in itself is waste so storing that and so on and is is work done and that needs to be managed but also is not delivering value right so so in the theory of constraints they call it elevating your bottleneck which is actually bringing it in front of um, in front of your uh, value stream right so that's the first thing that determines how quickly th how quickly you're pulling items from your backlog into your stream but in other theories they actually say well that's not necessarily a good thing uh, and there are more, more modern theories around lean which actually say you know well, you need to look at your queue sizes you need to look at efficiencies uh, in your process uh, to kind of uh, alleviate that bottleneck um, so there are and there are many ways of doing that you know for example in this particular example where if there is a QA only the QA is doing all the testing you can have people that are a bit more uh, kind of they're specializing but they're also generalist QAs so you get you know if they are uh, you know creating more work than the QA can take they can help the QA in alleviating that and as soon as the queue size goes down they can go back to development work that kind of thing as well so that there are different ways but of course it depends on your process which stage is suffering from a from kind of a bottleneck yeah but in some cases the bottleneck is just inherent so you can't alleviate it right so then what you can do is uh, reduce work in progress and yeah. and just except that that is the space at which so not build inventory but just release work into your value stream at the rate that the bottleneck can take all right okay you've mentioned a few things uh, but what are the um, main characteristics of value map of stream map the main characteristics yes. in terms of <coughs> how you visualize flow 
Um, yes, the different stages or the... Sorry, do you want to answer Chris. that question, Chris? <coughs> um, no, I wasn't going to because describing how a diagram looks on a podcast is pretty <laughs> difficult. <laughs> uh, I was making, I was making speech start. mark comments with my hands and then realised that <laughs> yeah, that's not going to count. We can start from an example. Um, no, I think we can, it's, it, we can generalise it a little bit. So there are... It's a diagram in which there are parts of a diagram. Um, the things that are modelled are like the materials flow and the flow of information through mm -hmm. the system. And typically you model materials flow with individual steps of a process sequentially in a line. And for each step in the process, if you have data points you care about, things like cycle time is a good example, but there are other ones. Common one in manufacturing is percent complete and accurate. So for certain industrial processes, they're not 100% efficient and there is, as you were saying, that either leads to rework or for some industrial processes there's actually like a yield of which, you know, 50% of the work is thrown away because that's just the nature how it is. Microprocessors is a good example of that. So the process that produces wafers has inherent waste in it because it can only be so efficient. So you know a certain amount of the work you do is wasted. But um, yeah, those data points you can capture and you write those next to the uh, steps of the process. Uh, between the steps of the process, you track the size of the queue in work items between the, each step of the process, mm -hmm. and you record a, a wait time for that um, queue. And then by summing up the wait times for the queue and the cycle times for each step of the process, the adding those two things together gives you, I think, your delivery lead time. And then you can also express the waste as a, or the wait time as a percentage of that delivery lead time, so you can see where you can look to make up improvements. And that's the best I can do in words. Okay, <laughs> so you've, done, you've done very well. <laughs> I can put a diagram on the... We, we, can, we can link to some examples. Yeah. Okay, so let's say you're going to run a um, value stream mapping exercise at an organization. Who are you going to talk to? It's a software product company. Mm. Who will you talk to? Who, the main who, who, who do you invite to the... Yes. You want um, people who... You want enough perspectives that cover the entire process stream. So you don't want to just make it like a you know, hierarchical organization. Just managers in their view of the system. You want the view of the people who do the work at each stage to make sure that we actually capture the real process and not someone's imagined version of it. So yeah, you want diverse perspectives in the room. Match, would you like to? Well, examples, actual, actual examples of. Oh, so if we're talking software, so you'd have developers, you'd have QAs, you'd have, if you were the kind of organization that has separate operations, people to do manage operational estates and do releases, you bring them in. Uh, product owner, um, a scrum master, if you have that kind of thing. So you want every, every perspective on the entire process represented, because right. the chances right. are they don't. Uh, automation engineer or site reliability engineers, as we call them, um, they would be in there as well. Even operations people would be in there because that's kind of to map the whole end-to-end -end flow. Yeah, anybody who sits on that flow between, so if we're talking software, between an idea being generated, a request being made, and that being shipped to the end user. Yeah, all of the dev and all of the ops. <laughs> in fact, the reason I say that is is. Um, the the book accelerate um, which is kind of in a way you know talking about why devops works mm -hmm. and they pick four key metrics which is quite telling that three of them are actually related to lean 
Yes. So the f- the four are lead time, which is directly lean. Mm. Deployment frequency, which is disguised the, uh, f- uh, batch size. Batch size. Batch size. So in lean, in order to create flow uh, and reduce bottlenecks, you have to reduce batch size because it's it's basically you know by definition reducing batch size reduces queue size, mm. right? So again, come from mean. The next one is mean time to recover. Mean time to recover. Uh, or restore. And that I think is a bit less lean. I think that's the only one. And the last one actually I have here is change fail percentage, right? Which is about waste, which is about stuff coming back. So rework. You Pardon? Rework, essentially. Yeah, rework, exactly. So the three of the four key metrics that Accelerate proposes as the, 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 the metrics you need to monitor in order to understand the health of a software development effort are actually from Lean um, and Value Stream Map is an integral part of Lean. So what is the mean time to recover? Mean time to recover or to restore is that if there is an outage, how quickly can you recover from it? Okay. Yes. Okay. So how do you, how do you apply Value Stream Mapping? talked about the actors who are involved, what it is. Basically, how do you, how do you run it? How quick, sorry. How do you run it? How do you apply value stream mapping to an organization? Uh, We've we've done it a few times. I think the best thing is that you need a whiteboard. (laughs) Yeah, with (laughs) a lot of space. A lot of space. So you need something that is, either you need a whiteboard or you can take like a, a roll, a paper roll, and then just kind of stick it. So that's Alberto Brandoli, these rolls. Yeah, like exactly. IKEA, like number you know, one paper. Event storming type yeah. thing. Exactly. And because you're going you're gonna to move from left to right, right? You don't need top, a lot of top down space, but you need a lot of left to right space, right? And you start with, as you start with the kind of goods coming in, and the things that you, there are only kind of, Top to down, you only need to really uh, show a few things. One is the information flow. In the middle, you have the stages, the physical stages. And at the bottom, you usually have this ladder that's showing the cycle time versus wait time in each um, each st- stage. stage. Yeah, yeah. So, so you basically need a lot of space. You need a good facilitator who understands what value stream mapping is. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a facilitator, you need to describe what a value stream map is. You need to maybe show examples first because it's it's not an easy thing to comprehend as we may be finding out on a podcast. <laughs> uh, but you know you need, really need to describe. You need to describe why it's there, right? And that is a static uh, map, right? Mm-hmm. That is value stream mapping as an exercise. But then it's part of visualizing your workflow and then Actually, your Kanban board is a value stream map, but it's a dynamic one. It's the one that's you're, you know, you're visualizing flow through your system on, on that. So you can do a static one, which is that as an exercise, as a workshop, and then you can have one that is always maintained. Okay. So, as I understand, value stream mapping is um, you do it at organizational level. Can you imagine it being? Uh, apply it to a, a department, for example, a single you, you, department. You apply it to like a product process, don't you? So it's not necessarily organisation wide, mm-hmm. unless you're. So if we if we talk about software exclusively, unless your software development process encompasses the entire organisation, 
Mm -hmm. then there is organizational but it could easily be departmental or even team level I guess mm -hmm. even at, at an individual level if you really want to stretch it because at the end of the day you can map any process that has di distinct stages where there might be a handover of some sort as well okay. uh, between stages um, you can you can visualize it using a value stream map right, okay. the reason I ask is because when doing a little bit of research about this topic I was reading this value stream mapping book, I can't remember the authors, but they were making a, a distinction between value stream mapping as a way to have the organization align, the whole organization be aligned and have set um, a high level uh, vision mm -hmm. for the whole organization. And then they, they would say that do not confuse it with a process level mapping I guess mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that's why I was I was thinking well it could be used as a as a kind of a process level uh, at a I micro level maybe I, th I think maybe I mean I haven't read that but yeah. maybe what they are trying to say is that you know it's value stream map you map mapping is you know, value is at the beginning of it, right? So you have to understand value, right? And I don't know, I, I, maybe they're talking about business value, but every process, the reason a process exists is there is some kind of transformation from the start to the end, mm -hmm. right? And that transformation is adding value, otherwise why would you do it? But <laughs> if it isn't adding value, you've got a real problem. Exactly, it's value to somebody or to something. So. I'm not sure, but um, I guess maybe at a higher level, you are talking about more about business value. Uh, lower level processes may, if it's a sub-process of some sort, it might be difficult to understand the end value of that process, because what you have to look at it is, is the end-to-end, -end, you know, something kind of raw goods coming in and a product going out that is providing a business so that I can only hazard a guess, but if I was, I would say it's that, but I mean, I'll have a look as well because I'm no expert. So I'll, I'll need to see if there is a, there are two different ways of value stream mapping. Yeah, all I can say is I've never seen it used that way, but yeah, no, sounds yeah. like it might work. Yeah. Okay, so you've run this exercise a few times, um, Chris and Mash. Um, so what results have you found using it? running it? Um, it really depends. Um, on a couple of case, occasions it sort of confirmed what people's uh, gut feel was about the state of the process. Uh, on one occasion we um, discovered a constraint further up the process pipeline that was actually making a lot of the improvement efforts that the development team are trying to do kind of pointless because that's one of the big advantage of doing this, you get this sort of entire system view of the workflow. And one of the problems I have when you, like whether you've got a team or a, group or a group of people or whatever who take a very narrow view of a certain slice of a process, you end up there with them making um, kind of potentially micro-optimizations just in the area. So local optimizations, I think, is what more correctly caused. And that can actually um, make the efficiency of the entire process worse if you don't, if you're not careful. So that was an interesting insight that we learned that actually the biggest constraint was outside the immediate control of the people we were doing the mapping for, which yeah. was a useful insight to get. Mm -hmm. 
the other thing is the shared understanding of how, um, how particularly if we're talking in a software context, how the development process works. Because you'd be surprised, uh, maybe you wouldn't be surprised, but you'd be surprised how many people who, who work in uh, software development don't actually understand what happens on a day-to-day basis end-to-end. And then the, the easiest thing is there to make, I think I'm, I'm having a jab at management, but it works both ways. A lot of people at the sharper end, developers, testers, don't actually understand a lot of the elaboration and the ideation that happens up front of them as well. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's an important exercise for everybody to for a team to focus because you it's you know you look start looking at the bottlenecks and it's quite clear where is the current bottleneck. Of course, that may not be the only one, but where the current one is, and for the whole team to actually rally to alleviating that and then moving together onto the next one rather than people. Uh, doing their own local optimizations and actually not really uh, contributing to the goal. Yeah, because the, the worst case scenario is you don't have that common shared perspective. Every little group of people has their own perspective. They mutate their own little things and you just get continuing chaos where lots of things are changing. And they might be changing for the better in like in a book sense, but they're not actually improving the end-to-end flow of the system. Yeah. How difficult is it? Or is it difficult at all having the people participating in these uh, these exercises? Uh, no, it's not. It's not that difficult at all, actually. In fact, people get quite excited when when they start seeing the flow, and especially when they start seeing uh, the wood for the trees, as it were. When they start seeing the bottlenecks, they start seeing what's causing them problem. And of course, it's just a reflection of their process. So they will relate to it immediately because they know, yeah, that's right, that's right. So you're just telling them what they as a collective already, already know, mm-hmm. but individually only know parts of. So it's kind of filling out the whole picture for them. And it's usually, I mean, I've never had a case where, I mean, usually we run this for two to three hours and time just flies because people are so, so engaged. Yeah, that's probably the one thing you got to look out for, actually, is it overrunning whatever time box you set for it. Yeah. <laughs> How many times should it be run? That's an interesting question. Um, you want to do it, so that kind of big, everybody in the room kind of static value map. I think you want to do it on a cadence, but probably, it kind of depends on the business, but I would say quarterly. Mm-hmm. But it, it does depend a little bit on what changes you're planning to make. I know from the manufacturing side of it, the, the, the process is map your current value stream and then invent your new one to make it better and then go away and implement it. And that probably makes sense, I guess, in factories where you can't just iteratively buy new machines and move them around the place. But I think when you're talking software, it's better to identify a bottleneck or two or a constraint or two, come up with an idea to fix them implement the fixes and then after a little while it's bedded in rerun the exercise to see if you've because ideally what will happen is you will have solved your bottleneck but the bottleneck will have moved somewhere else and then mm-hmm. you've got a new thing to to focus on yeah i suppose when you are trying to do that in that's when you need to buy, have buy-in from higher up because uh, yeah developers will be fine with it that's I, I suppose as well it will depend on the kind of bottleneck that we are talking about yes i this is one of the things i think the, in my experience, you, it's the least amount of effort to get buy-in for. It's a very data-driven process. It's very easy to show 
when you've made an improvement because you're focusing on the entire value chain, so and value stream. And you're involving all the key stakeholders that are part of the process, right? So usually because you build that picture together, mm -hmm. everyone understands where you're coming from. There's yeah. not a lot of convincing that needs to happen to say, here's the bottleneck and we need to work on that. So the buy-in is actually easier. In fact, it's a way of getting buy-in. Have you ever made an occasion where you maybe had a, um, an idea of solving a bottleneck and the actors were not uh, aligned with that idea or they didn't agree on how to solve that bottleneck? Yeah, all the time. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, okay. That's the thing. The value stream mapping exercise in itself, you don't actually come up with the ideas no. to solve a bottleneck. It shows you they where your problems are. Yeah. It makes them clear. Yeah. Then, yeah. then it's a team that has to work on the approach to resolve that bottleneck and teams disagree all the time. Oh, but, you know, yeah. as long this is probably the one constant through all <laughs> As long as they come to an agreement in ample time, disagreement is not a bad thing, but you know, as long as there is resolution, then it's, it's fine. If you take a sort of scientific experimental approach to it as well, then that kind of defuses all the discussions. Well, we'll try this. This is how we'll measure if it's successful yeah. failure or not. Yeah. It's yeah. time bound. Exactly. If it turns out it was the wrong call, yeah. okay, we'll try something else. Yeah. The suppose proof of concepts are interesting in this area. Well, well the equivalent of proof of concepts, uh, having it, uh, been able to quickly have a quick test of how to change do the change. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. I, well, the thing is, any change, either if you're gonna do it like all in, then you must have empirical evidence that that change is gonna work. If you don't have empirical evidence that change is gonna work. Then, then you are being quite unprofessional to go all in. <laughs> so then you must experiment. Yeah. yeah. And then you must say, okay, here is my hypothesis, and now I need to find out what's the quickest way or the least costly way to find out if my hypothesis is correct. Yeah. I think that's a good approach to take, especially with software, because it's such an intangible thing and it's such a very people-processed, people-focused process. Um, it's very chaotic. It has a strong observer effect. You know, whenever you're dealing with people, it's always, I think, good to experiment because mm -hmm. they, they react in strange and unpredictable ways to change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I suppose it's likely if we are doing a small improvements into the process that we end with, uh, again, with local optimizations, if maybe sometimes it's just changing completely the process where it actually brings the benefits. Have you been at any point on that situation? Sorry, can you repeat that? I didn't <laughs> fully understand. Sorry, sorry. So, if we are doing small changes into a process, mm -hmm. oh, it is that will suggest to me that we are basically leaning to, uh, towards the local optimizations. And sometimes, maybe what it is needed is to change the, the whole process wholesale. It's, has been that the case for you before? Have you seen uh, that as needed? Or so your question is uh, whether that sometimes we are, we are often working on local optimization, but sometimes it's better to change the whole process? Hmm. It looks to me like, we were, like uh, from what we have been talking about 
doing the smaller the changes bit by bit is that it does what you end with local optimization. So we end with a false peak where in fact if you yes. tore it all down and started from scratch you then so we end up with a local maxima rather than the theoretical maxima. Yeah. Is that the right? Yeah. So but but the thing is uh, I, I think any change should be looked at holistically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should not be you should not be making a change in a particular place if you don't know what the overall impact for that change is. Right, so we, of course, we do, we, we are prone to detail because it's, it's the hazard of our profession. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, we, we have to, to code in detail, right? And sometimes you forget to come out or it's difficult to come out and look at the, the whole thing. But just because it's not easy to look at the whole thing often does not mean you shouldn't. You should always, every change that you are making, you should have a holistic view on where it maps onto. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that is a um, responsibility of every team member. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm thinking of something like, uh, and which is not a problem right now because, well, not a problem. We understand better. But if you are looking at uh, doing small improvements, uh, we were talking about the QA early on, mm-hmm. the the quick thing to do improve the the flow is to add additional QA people at the end. Now changing the QA and putting it at the beginning, it is a major change in how the QA is uh, and the process and the whole process works. Yeah, it's easier, but actually <coughs> adding more QAs at the end is is not going to make you go faster. It's just going to make it faster to push defects back in the process and overwhelm the development <laughs> so you know you've, you're fixing a symptom not a problem and the problem will remain and I think although it seems easier but that's what I mean again is that example of a change that you're making even adding a, another QA right assuming that there is a bottleneck and of course this again you there might be a bottleneck there and you have alleviated it with um, adding another QA but what it's going to do is create another one. In fact, it's not going to create another one. It's just going to highlight the waste because even the one QA would have discovered the defects and at some point they would have gone back. It's just that they're going back quicker. Yeah. But then it's the waste is the same. Right. So, yes, it can uh, kind of remedy a sy- symptom, but not your not the root cause. It's such a cliche. It's not a silver bullet. It makes your constraints visible. Yeah. But it doesn't automatically give you the genius to pick the right solution. Yeah. Yeah. So there are other tools for that, things like, you know, root cause analysis and mm-hmm. the like to make sure that you're to try and ensure you're doing yeah. the right thing. Exactly. So Once you understand where the bottleneck is, you then you then have to work out how to how to fix it. So as a facilitator for this exercise, do you um, I don't know, do you advise the team in the right direction in choosing the right solution? For example, no, 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 not as a facilitator, yeah. but as a consultant. <laughs> <laughs> so, so sometimes we do go in wearing two hats. Um, usually, you try to get the whole process done, and often you can see, as a facilitator, you can see they're trying to kind of, as soon as they they see the first problem, they will try to start kind solution. of thinking solution, and actually the. The idea is to kind of complete the whole thing, identify everything, 
but don't try to fix it yet. Okay. Once you once you've identified the whole thing, so you as facilitator, you need to keep them away from finding the solution. Uh, and and then once they see the whole thing, then you look at the the bottleneck, the bottleneck. There's only ever one, <laughs> uh, by definition. So, so then you uh, and you'll only find the bottleneck once you've gone through the whole value stream. Okay, interesting point about being facilitators while doing the the exercise. Uh, is there when you are doing it? Is there any specific way, format, which you follow, a uh, way of doing it? And do, do you start, do you, do you I don't know, uh, uh, do you start always with the same people uh, starting the... Do you have any kind of structure of how you are doing the exercise? I don't know if there is a structure. I mean, the structure is dictated by, you know, First of all, you need to get everyone in the room. You need to make sure that they understand what the exercise mm -hmm. is about, what it will look like. So, you know, get them all up to speed with what's happening. And then you start. You start with, um, you know, uh, the, the, you, you kind of start. Normally, you will start with like the information flow on the top because what you're looking at is how is the demand for coming in? Who is managing that demand? Mm -hmm how that then gets fed into uh, the kind of the, the start of your process. And then you start looking at uh, each and every stage. And at the same time, you're usually looking at the cycle time and the wait time. So you're kind of going from left to right, really. Actually, I was uh, not going to just say a leading question because I remember you, Chris, uh, no, it was in the meetup, it was in the last open the space, open space and you say that you were starting, you started it from the back with the, your last client. Oh no, that's a trick that um, I'd like to use a lot. Anything when you're modeling a sequential process, it's, it's helpful sometimes to start from the end and work backwards to the front because people not always agree when things start mm -hmm. but they can usually agree where stuff ends mm -hmm. but even if you don't start at the end and work backwards it's usually a good idea with those kind of sequential workflows to run them through in one direction and then run them back the other way yeah because it kind of changes people's perspective of them well when you explain in that one thing that it came to mind is that uh, as you are doing that well uh, maybe uh, the information or what it is needed to do the step is different to what the current information is being given into into the step. Like you always do uh, provide to the next step S and Y because that's why you have always done it. But once you start investigating into each step, actually maybe that's not the correct information. Maybe that's the at that point on time the thing that is uh, taking care of the of the step has to retrieve a different set of information which would much easier if, if it's provided from the previous step. Has that ever appeared? Not for me. I, I do think when you start at the end and go backwards it makes it easier for people to think of it as a pull-based process which is quite a handy thing. Mm -hmm. When you start at the front it feels people start to feel or at least describe it in terms of a push which isn't ideal but uh, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say we've if I've ever reconsidered how the 
inputs and outputs of the processes meet all the steps of the processes mm. interface just based on the order of which we discussed it I don't think well, I think it's interesting it's to review it happen. both ways, right? To kind of, if you do from left to right, then kind of see how if you were kind of review it from from the kind of pull perspective as well and vice versa. I think it'll be interesting to kind of review, go, go the other way. Mm. And I think you do, uh, you end up doing that anyway once you, once you've come up with the, with the actual visualization, then you, you normally kind of take a step back and you, you know, you, you have a look, you kind of go through mm -hmm. um, both, both directions. Will you do both directions on the same session or do you do it as a separate session? Same session. Same session. Same session. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to give, one part is to identify the bottleneck, but the other part is to give everybody a common understanding of what the, what the actual flow is. Yeah, particularly the bits that they're not, that aren't there day to day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you didn't mention that sometimes, most of the time, they don't agree. The people in the room don't usually agree, don't necessarily agree on the, the all the steps or um, the wait time, etc. So what happens then when they don't agree? That they don't agree on the actual process steps, or yes. they don't agree on some data point around the process steps. On the actual steps. Then <laughs> they've just got to come to a conclusion. We've got a problem yeah. there. Yeah. But generally, I would, I would um, be inclined to go with the person who actually does it. Because <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. yes. it basically boils down to describe what you do on an average day. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I've never seen that level of disagreement. I've, I've certainly seen the, the kind of disagreement where someone says, "Oh, well, we do this, this, and this," and then someone else pipes, "Oh, no, it's not how it works." And then there's a conversation, and they okay. correct it. But I've never seen flat out actual disagreement saying that this happens. No. Yeah. yeah, I think the interesting thing is uh, when disagreement on how long a particular yeah. stage takes or how big is the queue, and often those disagreement happens because uh, usually you're asking for estimates because often they they are they haven't considered those things as stages, and often they are certainly not monitoring. No, so that's and that's actually one of the first things that happens. In fact. Uh, often the first exercise is not where you come up with the bottlenecks. The first time you do this exercise, you come up with the data points that you need. And then you create uh, the process or create the measurements uh, at those points so that when you have enough data, you come back and do it again. And you now have the data points. And the data points are basically you know, how long does each stage take? How long do you have to wait? What's the queue size? Those kind of things. They're normally not monitoring them. If they're yeah. monitoring them, they already have visualized their flow, yeah. but they're not. So then that's the best, the first thing that comes up. Then you kind of create the process to do it. And then next time you have the information to understand your value stream. Yeah, any empirical data that you can gather and take into those sessions is useful, even if it doesn't fit the way the process ends up being mapped. It's mm. useful to jog people's guesses and reset their expectations about how long things take. Because even if you can, you can usually measure the end-to-end -end, um, time, like the mm. delivery lead time in most systems. So if we pick an example out of the ASA, it's two months long, and people put their best estimates for you know, the various 
cycle times, uh, wait times, queue times, etc., and it comes up as like three weeks, you can say, well, I, I can definitely measure on average it takes you two, two months to do this. So we're missing something here or these estimates are wrong or whatever. You can just use that as a, just to jog people into thinking about it a bit harder. True. Because there, there tends to be a bit of a, uh, if you're not careful, sometimes this stuff, there's a lot of wishful thinking going on, as in people describe what they would like, how they would like it to work <laughs> and rather than how it's actually working. Oh, I've, had, I've had that case. <laughs> we, we once ran, ran an exercise and we were basically doing that and uh, I shan't name names. And then, uh, so we had the, the picture up, and then we had another group we were doing a slightly kind of a different workshop with, and kind of the first workshop we did was with the product owners, and and there was some representative uh, development people as well. But the next workshop was with the developers, and they looked at the board and they said, "Is that what's gonna be our?" new process and said, no that's your current process and no it's not <laughs> so okay we didn't have the right people in the room then <laughs> but there was a lot of wishful thinking they almost thought we were going to judge them or something but so that was also a, a failure on our side to actually fully understand the politics and make sure we did ask for every representative but the ones that got chosen for us were obviously not the full representative population of the Yeah, and the then depending on who you invite and their relationships, you, you end up with people potentially performing to put the best spin on their little bit for their boss. Exactly. Or their boss's exactly. boss. Exactly. So you, you've got to be aware of those kind of relationships if you can. Yeah. It's got to be a safe space, I guess. Yeah. 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 All right. Okay. So um, are there any variations to, um, run to value stream mappings? Um, not uh, not formal ones as far as I know, but then I'm, I'm not an expert on it. What I will say is a lot of the material out there you will see when researching it is based on um, you know industrial processes and, and making physical things and manufacturing. So when you would adapt that to software, everybody does that I think slightly differently. Mm -hmm. As far as the way there isn't a canonical way of doing that for like software development or just to generalize a bit more sort of knowledge work processes. Mm -hmm. So people tend to put their own spin on those, on mapping the concepts from uh, manufacturing to whatever domain they're doing. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not aware of any. I mean, people have always done exercises like this without calling it value stream mapping. Um, you know, visualizing your process is not new. Mm -hmm. um, people have been doing it forever really I think value stream mapping is just a, a name and there is a more specific format but it's I don't think it's anything majorly new you have mentioned before and uh, the value stream mapping is just one of the tools uh, and rather this is the tool to as we have mentioned before the tool to show the the issues and then you oh, where the problems are located, and then we have to look into why the problems are located. Mm -hmm. And w we'll not go into detail on them, but which tools will you use after the value stream mapping? We have you have talked, you have mentioned a root cause analysis. Analysis is there anything else? Um, I mean, you know, if you once. Uh, I guess 
I'm not sure of any formal, you know, the firewise and so on. I mean, other than those, I'm sure there are alternatives to root cause analysis. Um, I can't think of any, but I know that there are criticisms of the root cause analysis process itself. Hmm. Um, but it's an interesting question. I mean, you, you identify the problem, then how do you come to finding a, um, a solution to a problem as a team and root cause analysis is one way of getting to the root cause because that's what you're trying to do, you're trying to address the root cause. Um, I, d I am not aware of anything more formal other than the five whys. And not really, I think the, the actual problem solving part is obviously going to be very dependent on the nature of the constraint in question, isn't it? So you can do your five whys to make sure you've got to the real underlying cause of the bottleneck. But that, again, that's still it's not a solution. Mm, yeah, and it, it all depends on, you know, the people in the room. It, it all depends on, an, yeah, even, even, I mean, I've run the root cause analysis exercise lots of times, and not always you get to the actual root cause. And it really does depend on people in the room, um, um, how insightful they are and how willing they are. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear about other techniques that can help understand the root causes of a problem. Uh, All right, okay. So, one uh, last question that I had was, is this an approach or methodology that can actually be viewed as universal? Can you apply to any type of organization, really? It was borrowed from manufacturing, now it's being applied to software or knowledge-based, mm -hmm. um, but um, can you imagine that it can be viewed as, as universal? Yeah, I mean, it's like a data, f uh, it's like a, f not data flow, but a flow diagram of anything, you know, it's mapping a process of, it is a flow diagram <laughs> in a way, right? It's mapping a process. So, uh, as I think earlier on Chris said as well, that it's actually not relevant to type of organization is relevant to the type of process, right? A process that has stages, uh, that has, you know, handover, maybe handover between stages. Um, but what I mean by handover, that there are kind of multiple workstations, as it were. Mm -hmm. People collaborating. Where, yeah, where people are collaborating. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, when I mean workstation, yeah, I mean kind of in a logical sense, you know, stages yeah. and where people are collaborating and there's handoff, uh, that kind of thing. Then yes, um, it can be applied. It can be applied to anything. All right. Yeah, yeah it's always dangerous to describe something as universal because it's very easy to disprove universal. You just need one counter example, don't you? Like, <laughs> <laughs> how would you value stream map a football team? Like, mm. What's the universal? It's an organization. Is. Is, it, is it a process? Is it? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe the you've got, you've got people collaborating to come to an outcome that delivers value. Some. <laughs> I guess. I guess. You this know, is another, another, qual <laughs> another qualification is that it's some kind of sequence involved, right? Because yeah. football matches maybe not sequential. I don't know. <laughs> okay. It's certainly very widely applicable. Yeah, that's a good way of. Anything that uh, we have failed to cover that you want to mention? Mm. 
No, I don't think so. No, I think it's just important to um, reiterate that value stream mapping is a stage and it's a workshop. It's actually, you know, part of the lean way. And it's very important to understand what that is, you know, because the map you are creating in order to create flow in the system. Right. So that's the goal. The goal is that you've got a, a system and you're trying to, a process and you're trying to create flow in that process, i.e. you're trying to uh, reduce all the bottlenecks, make it optimal process-wide rather than individual stage at individual stages. You're looking to make the system optimal. Yeah, exactly. You're optimizing the system. It's important to say that the value stream mapping in itself has no value. It is a, a, uh, an exercise to help you create flow. Okay. Okay, thank you very much, everyone. Yeah, thank you for thank joining you. us. Thank right. you. Nice to you. be back. Later. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs>